Chapter sixty seven of the House by the Churchyard. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Brandon. A House by the Churchyard. Chapter sixty seven in which a certain troubled spirit walks mr dangerfield was at the club that night and was rather in spirits than otherwise except indeed when poor charles nutter was talked of then he looked grave and shrugged and shook his head and said a bad business sir and where's his poor wife spending the night with us poor soul said major o'neill mildly and hasn't an idea poor thing and indeed i hope she mayn't hear it pooh sir she must hear it but you know she might have heard worse sir eh rejoined dangerfield true for you sir said the major suspending the filling of his pipe to direct a quiet glance of significance at dangerfield and then closing his eyes with a nod and just at this point in came spate well spate well sir you saw the body eh and a dozen other interrogatories followed as cold and wet with melting snow dishevelled and storm-beaten for it was a plaguy rough night the young fellow with a general greeting to the company made his way to the fire "'Tis a tremendous night, gentlemen, so by your leave I'll stir the fire. And yes, I seen him, poor nutter. And, paw, an ugly sight he is, I can tell you. Here, Larry, bring me a rummer glass of punch. His right ear's gone, and almost all his right hand, and screeching hot, do you mind? Ah, phew! Altogether tis sickening, them fishes, you know i'm almost sorry i went in you remember darty's whisky shop in ring's end he lies in the back parlor and wonderful little changed in appearance and so mr spate with a little round table at his elbow and his heels over the fender sipped his steaming punch and thought inwardly and outwardly as he answered their questions and mixed in their speculations up at the mills which had heard the awful news first from the widow mackin and afterwards from pat moran the maids sat over their tea in the kitchen in high excitement and thrilling chat the poor master oh the poor man oh la what's that with a start and a peep over the shoulders and oh dear and how in the world will the poor little mistress ever live over the news and so forth made a principal part of their talk there was a good accompaniment of wind outside and a soft pelting of snow on the window panes and oh my dear life but wasn't it dark up went mogi with her thick-wicked kitchen candle to seek repose and betty resolving not to be long behind waited only to wash up her plates and slack down the fire having made up her mind for she grew more nervous in solitude 
to share Mogi's bed for that night. Mogi had not been twenty minutes gone, and her task was nearly ended, when, oh, blessed saints, murmured Betty, with staring eyes, and dropping the sweeping brush on the flags, she heard, or thought she heard, her master's step, which was peculiar, crossing the floor overhead. She listened, herself as pale as a corpse, and nearly as breathless, but there was nothing now but the muffled gusts of the storm, and the close soft beat of the snow. So she listened, and listened, but nothing came of it. "'Tis only the vapors," said Betty, drawing a long breath, and doing her best to be cheerful. And so she finished her labors, stopping every now and then to listen, and humming tunes very loud, in fits and starts. Then it came to her turn to take her candle and go upstairs. She was a good half-hour later than Mogi. All was quiet within the house. Only the sound of the storm, the creak and rattle of its strain, and the hurly-burly of the gusts over the roof and chimneys. Over her shoulder she peered jealously this way and that, as with flaring candles she climbed the stairs. How black the window looked on the lobby, with its white patterns of snowflakes in perpetual succession, sliding down the panes. Who could tell what horrid face might be looking in close to her as she passed? Secure in the darkness, and that drifting white lace veil of snow. So nimbly and lightly up the stairs climbed Betty the cook. If listeners seldom hear good of themselves, it is also true that peepers sometimes see more than they like. And Betty the cook, as she reached the landing, glancing askance with ominous curiosity, beheld a spectacle, the sight of which nearly bereft her of her senses. Crouching in the deep doorway on the right of the lobby, the cook, I say, saw something, a figure or a deep shadow, only a deep shadow or maybe a dog. She lifted the candle. She peeped under the candlestick. Twas no shadow, as I live. Twas a well-defined figure. He was draped in black, cowering low, with the face turned up. It was Charles Nutter's face, fixed and stealthy. It was only while the fascination lasted, while you might count one, two, three, deliberately, that the horrid gaze met mutually. But there was no mistake there. She saw the stern, dark picture as plainly as ever she did. The light glimmered on his white eyeballs. Starting up, he struck at the candle with his hat. She uttered a loud scream, and flinging stick and all at the figure, with a great clang against the door behind, all was swallowed in instantaneous darkness. She whirled into the opposite bedroom she knew not how, and locked the door within, and plunged head foremost under the bedclothes, half mad with terror. The squall was heard, of course, Mogi heard it, but she heeded not. But Betty was known to scream at mice and even moths, and as her door was heard to slam, as was usual in panics of the sort, and as she returned no answer, 
Mogi was quite sure there was nothing in it. But Mogi's turn was to come. When spirits walk, I've heard they make the most of their time and sometimes pay a little round of visits on the same evening. This is certain. Mogi was by no means so great a fool as Betty, in respect of goblins, witches, banshees, hookahs, and the world of spirits in general. She eat heartily and slept soundly, and as yet had never seen the devil. Therefore such terrors as she that night experienced were new to her, and I can't reasonably doubt the truth of her narrative. Awaking suddenly in the night, she saw a light in the room and heard a quiet rustling going on in the corner where the old painted press showed its front from the wall. So Mogi popped her head through her thin curtains at the side, and blessed hour! There she saw the shape of a man looking into the press, the doors being wide open, and the appearance of a key in the lock. The shape was very like her master, the saints between us and harm. The glow was reflected back from the interior of the press, and showed the front part of the figure in profile with a sharp line of light. She said he had some sort of thick slippers over his boots, a dark coat with a cape buttoned, and a hat flapping over his face, coat and hat and all, sprinkled over with snow. As if he heard the rustle of the curtain, he turned toward the bed, and with an awful ejaculation she cried, "'Tis you, sir!' "'Don't stir.' and you'll meet no harm, he said. And over he posts to the bedside, and he laid his cold hand on her wrist and told her again to be quiet, and for her life to tell no one what she had seen. And with that, she supposed, she swooned away. For the next thing she remembered was listening in mortal fear, the room being all dark, and she heard a sound of the press again, and then steps crossing the floor, and she gave herself up for lost. But he did not come to the bedside any more, and the tread passed out at the door, and so, as she thought, went downstairs. In the morning the press was locked and the door shut, and the hall door and back door locked, and the keys on the hall table, where they had left them the night before. You may be sure these two ladies were thankful to behold the gray light and hear the cheerful sounds of returning day, and it would be no easy matter to describe which of the two looked most pallid, scared, and jaded that morning as they drank a hysterical dish of tea together in the kitchen, close up to the window, and with the door shut discoursing and crying and praying over their teapot in miserable companionship end of chapter 67 recording by john brandon